0: So, in life, we all have, uh, well, we tend to have hobbies, pastimes, creative endeavors, things that we love to do. In the Buddhist time, he called it ajasaya, which meant pleasurable activities, activities that don't have any negative karma, they don't cause harm in and of themselves, drawing, being creative, uh, writing, uh, even, you know, non-creative pastimes, gardening, that's creative, mm-hmm. <laughs> fixing your bike, I don't know, Dive things like, you know, I don't want to genderize it either, so it's like, I just call it guy things because I see these guys outside my house working on their motorcycles all day long, but it's totally appropriate for women as well if they want to waste their lives too. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, there's things that we do, hobbies, and the reason they're so pleasant uh, Neuroscience shows us that task-positive things that use our hands um, basically create what's known as a neural flow that keeps us connected with what's going on not only internally but externally, and because we're so engaged, um, we don't allow the mind to wander anywhere it wants, and we don't fall victim to... uh, kind of thinking uh, that causes um, ruminating, uh, the kind of thoughts where we just go back to conflicts or speculative thinking, such as, what do other people think about me, or what's going to happen to me in the future, financial insecurity. The Buddha talked about Papancha, which is obsessive thought, and basically he defined it as any kind of thinking where we merge speculation, the unknown, with thoughts of self. Sort of the miracle grows of uh, of (laughs) obsession. Just put a little bit of yourself and sprinkle a little of the unknown in there and you can grow thoughts forever. And that kind of um, uh, what's known as default mode processing creates stress. It releases cortisol, releases um, lots of uh, stressors in the body. The body gets tense because we're not present We're kind of in a guarded place because we're lost in thought. That's where the phrase comes from. So our pleasant activities, our ajasayas, the things we love to do, they're the things we turn to to stop the mind from obsessing, from getting caught up in self. That's one of the reasons why they're so pleasant, not just because we love gardening or... Uh, drawing or strumming our guitar, God forbid. It's such a played-out instrument. <coughs> I'm just saying that because I strum a banjo. Uh, so we uh, we love our activities because they quiet the mind. Now that would all be good, but there's a, something that sabotages. Um, we have a Ouija, which is an ingrained inner belief or a feeling, let's say, that we're not safe, that we're not allowed to relax. Uh, The mind is programmed to survive in uh, environments that have long passed. While we've come out of the jungle and have created cities and We've expanded our lifespans beyond what uh, people in the Paleolithic or any, you know, the the previous eras could dream of. We still are born into minds that have fully activated fear centers uh, that keep us constantly on guard, worried. And we have also dopamine reward systems, which don't allow us really to fully relax until they engage and reward us for an activity. This is why it's so much easier for us to meditate on a beach or in a, the top of a mountain, because when you've accomplished something, when you've done something, you release dopamine, and then the brain is set up to feel, ha ah, ha, now, now I get to relate." Because after the dopamine, then when you accomplish something, hopefully then you get the release of serotonin. And that creates the full experience of, of allowing yourself to settle. That's why it's difficult for us just to relax fully at home because the mind is set up to not allow us to fully um, chill without doing, accomplishing. Now on top of this innate in Bread, uh, programs, uh, edginess, anxiety, have to do and accomplish, not allowing ourselves to feel safe, even though statistically you are all safe. You know, None of you are going to be, as we say, eaten on your way back home. I hope you aren't. That would be horrible. Uh, though if you are, I hope you will film it. so we are far more safe than the brain allows us to know and it actually takes a lot of spiritual practice to reprogram the mind to feel safe to feel relaxed, to calm because the mind is not set up for happiness or tranquility it's set up to survive that's what our brains are programmed for so this feeling of a Ouija Looks around for things that it can latch on to, activities, behaviors, things that it can clutch onto to make ourselves feel safe, to feel okay. And very often it latches on to these activities that quiet or give us a sense of uh, joy in our lives. And then what it attaches to it, the Buddha taught us, is uh, called raga, R A G A, which is passion. And so passion, in this case, is the addictive, clinging belief that unless I have my drawing, my art, my bicycle riding, my banjo playing, my this or that, I have no way to uh, quiet the mind. And then on top of it, from Raga grows Upadana, which is all the thoughts and stories and desires for approval in the world, to feel good enough to feel loved. And to a certain degree, this ingrained feeling of uh, not being safe, not being able to relax, can very easily merge with early childhood experience where we don't often have, or some of us don't have at times, secure connection with caretakers where we feel uh, emotionally tolerated or uh, constantly uh, accepted. Um, and so we can grow up as well, not only with this pre-programmed anxiety and feeling that we're not safe, which is in everybody's brain. We all have mid-brains that are set up that way. Uh, but then, depending upon childhood experience, that can be exacerbated. And we can really feel that unless we perform and achieve and accomplish and get things done and and show off how good we are, that uh, there's something missing, there's something wrong with us. There's a kind of emptiness. Uh, The psychologist Winnicott called this a false self, where we begin to perform and act and try to get approval because we don't feel safe and lovable as we are, we feel we need to show how good we are before we can feel that we are truly, deeply acceptable and lovable. The comedian, I think it was Robin Williams, not a fan, he's a terrible actor, but <laughs> but who cares, because he said a good quote that I can use, and if you, if you teach the Dharma, you'll do anything for a good quote. You'll even quote people you don't particularly admire. <laughs> Uh, Robin Williams (laughs) said something about the fact that he didn't really feel loved in childhood. The only time he felt loved was by uh, making people laugh. And so at first, making people laugh felt really good because he got connection. He felt, you know, he felt connected and accepted by his parents. But then after a while, what happens is these strategies, the things that these pastimes we enjoy, making people laugh, drawing, playing an instrument, painting, dancing, uh, gardening, whatever it is, eventually the, when it becomes consumed by the seeking approval, seeking acceptance, seeking unconditional love, then what happens is it becomes corrupted. Because the approval we seek is conditional. We can't control how other people receive our work. Sometimes people are in a bad mood and they don't like our work when it's very good, or sometimes our work just doesn't get their attention, or sometimes the world is filled with other people who are just as good at strumming a guitar or playing the bassoon or whatever. Uh, <laughs> And so we don't get attention, and we don't get the four things we seek addictively. We seek um, financial gain. We seek that sense of release from our stressful thoughts and states. We seek approval, and we seek fame. So those are the worldly wins the Buddha talked about. We chase. And when they get mixed up in the things that we enjoy just enjoyed authentically as children, what happens is very quickly the things, the pastimes, the activities, the creative um, loves that we have, suddenly it's no longer just enough to draw something or to sing. We have to sing better. We have to draw better. We have to get money for what we draw. We have to get recognition for uh, the guitar, or uh, making art. And so the pastime that brings joy is no longer bringing us joy. It's gotten wrapped up in this need for acceptance, and that need for acceptance can never come from without, because when it's coming from without, it's conditional. We have no control over it. No matter how wonderful we, our album is that we've recorded, no matter how many people love it, eventually we feel hollow, empty again, and then it becomes a meaningless endeavor, chasing approval, and then you wind up in Radiohead, releasing willfully obscure albums that nobody enjoys. And that's all I have to say. No, that's not where <laughs> So, um, yeah, so when Raga, which is passion, and Upadana, which is stories and clinging, seeking approval, seeking acceptance, stories about who we are, stories about what's right, all the clinging comes in, then uh, eventually we set ourselves up for disenchantment. And there's three stages of disenchantment. So the first stage is nakama, when we begin to see that no matter how much we try to get approval or fame or recognition or uh, acceptance or no matter how much uh, we, we cling to the money that we make, it's nothing is under our control and the feelings of emptiness still reappear after a short period of time. And so the strategy of trying to make ourselves feel lastingly safe and lastingly loved through these endeavors isn't working. Nakama is a realization that the action is not bringing the desired result. So what we used to love, the ajasaya, the painting, now becomes something that uh, is disenchanting. And then viraga. If raga means passion, viraga means this, this passion, we lose the passion even for the thing that we used to love as a child. We might have loved, you know, uh, doing something creative, but then as an adult when we try to win over people uh, the things that we love, suddenly we lose the passion for it because it's not bringing us the thing that has become conflated with the endeavor. We're trying to get love, or trying to get a sense of lasting security, and it can't give that to us. And then finally there's vimuti, which means really just to finally we just throw up our hands and we let go. Vimuti is the end of clinging. Even the stories that we've told about how important this endeavor is begin to fall away. And so... At this point, when the thing, the activities, the pastimes, the creative endeavors, the uh, the skills that we've developed and we used to enjoy now uh, bring a sense of alienation, what do we do? Well, we come to Dharma Punks, of course. <laughs> That's where people go when they begin to feel alienated from their lives. <laughs> And the first hope, just like when people go to AA meetings, they hope, can, can you show me how to drink skillfully? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the time, you really can't. You just, you know. But, and so part of the problem is that skill, spiritual practice does lead to a certain amount of uh, disillusionment. We, be, we really begin to see that the stuff, that we're trying to get from our worldly activities, we're trying to get the love we didn't get in childhood or the acceptance we didn't get from our peers in early schooling experience, or we're trying to get a sense of I'm okay or trying to get security. Guess what? It can't give it to us. That those, those states can't be accomplished conditionally from external... They have to come from within. So... Uh, We wind up in this state of uh, disillusionment, and the next thing that generally happens is what I like to call black-and-white thinking, where there's a temptation to just say, fuck it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I've played music enough. I've been in that band, and we released our album, and It sold a few copies, but now I feel empty and still I'm unhappy, so fuck it. I'm not even going to pick up my guitar anymore. And the Buddha, though, in the householder suttas, he discouraged this kind of thinking. He talked about developing balance in life, and he talked about using spiritual practice as the thing that gives us the lasting Happiness, the lasting security, so that we can free ourselves up to return to the pastimes that we love and enjoy them just for what they are, but stripping out the contamination of trying to get something that those pastimes were never meant to bring to us. So, for example, in the Dhananjani Sutta, the Buddha talks about finding a livelihood that Dhananjani, the uh, householder, likes, but one that doesn't interrupt his ability to um, have a spiritual practice, to sit, to meditate, to attend to his spiritual community. What the Buddha is saying is do both. Have a practice you love, your yoga, your art, your drawing, and, and enjoy it. But when you're looking for unconditional, true, deep feelings of, of healing and self-care and growth, let your spiritual practice be involved. One of the... Um, Wonderful teachers I studied with Tom Jeff. He said that in life we juggle a lot of balls We juggle exercise At least theoretically in my part <laughs> <laughs> It's a theoretical ball in juggling <laughs> and then there's Then there's uh, making a living. There's friendships there's uh, uh, maybe family uh whatever you have, there's balls that you juggle, and then there's also and friendships, but then there's also the spiritual ball. And if you think of your spiritual practice as just another ball, it's going to just add more stress in your life. One more thing to try to succeed at, try to accomplish at, try to become really good at. And instead, if you don't think of it as something that's another ball you're juggling, and if it is, you'll just drop it anyway. But think of it as the foundation that you rest upon, and that's where you're searching for the ability to find security, ease, tranquility, peace, so that the other endeavors that you used to love that might have become a little hollow or disenchanting because you've somehow maybe found work doing what you love, but then you have difficult people you work for, or maybe because you're not yet able to make a living from your creative or your the pastime you love, your hobbies that you love, your activities that you love. And so what we want to do is return of that beauty, that sense of joy, without trying to stretch it and shape it and turn it into... Uh, something that it's not meant to be. It's meant to give us time where we can shut down all the brain's needless chatter and simply become one with the task. But the act of healing, the act of opening to old wounds, and the act of developing self-acceptance, that's the heavy lifting that we can t- use our spiritual practice for. To King Pasenadi, the Buddha talked in the Aputtaka Sutta. He said, spend the things that you've earned not just on yourself, on your family, but also leave yourself time for your spiritual practice. The Sigalavada as well, the great householder suttas, the Buddha talked about showing up for work and for one's families, one's responsibilities, but he starts out the entire sutta again by saying, also, have a spiritual practice where you can develop, the, get those core needs met. So, um, I'm going to conclude by talking about some of the ways we can do this. The first is that while we're back in our pastimes that we love, our creative endeavors, develop a way to release the body from that striving, that that I've got to get this done really fast. Very often in life, the the contamination of um, productivity, needing to get love, needing to get accepted, needing to make money, needing... turns the body into this stressful container while we create. And... If beneath the level of creative awareness there's a tense body, then unconsciously we're we're going to begin to associate the things we love, the activities that bring us joy, with stress. We're going to be in these tight shells while we're trying to do the things we love. Because it's been contaminated by, I've got to do this to get people to like me and approve of me. Well, if we can breathe, stretch out the breath, relax into the body, truly relax into the physicality, and see if we can rid that, that, that state of onrushing production to, to schedule we can begin to reopen to just the embodied state of being fully present, neural flow, engagement, that activity, ajasaya, that we love. Two, pause before you show your work to anyone else. Develop the ability to sit with what you've done, what you've created, and take a look at it and really soak in the feeling that you've created or done something or accomplished something. The moment you turn it over to your friend, wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, roommate, hey, look at this, look at this, and they're like, yeah, whatever. Hey, I got this text. Yeah, I, got this text. I wrote this this guy, this girl, and she wrote, huh? You're like I just wrote a novel. I just wrote a novel. They're like, I got a text. (laughs) The moment we bring in we bring in the need to show, the need to make it real by showing it to someone, actually what we do is we open into the realm of the conditional where we have no control whatsoever. And where very quickly the sense of completion and accomplishment and the sense of fulfillment can be stripped away by that completely inattentive roommate. And when we don't know how to truly develop what the Buddha called kaganusati, then we're really depriving ourselves. Because so many of the things we're going to accomplish in our lives, nobody... A lot of people will not see, and if we deprive ourselves of the ability to feel the sense of reward of having built something beautiful or achieved something, uh, it's, a, it's it's uh, it's it's quite sad, and that uh, it means that we can only feel that we've really done something worthy once we get somebody to say, "Yes, it's real. Yes, I see that. Yes, it's good." It's really important when we show our work to not fixate on the reactions, to keep awareness on the body, the breath, staying relaxed. Hypervigilance, looking, trying to read the minds of the people we're showing our work to, trying to get their love, pulls us out of the body, and it pulls us out of the sense of um, having just the creation in and of itself being enough, being joyful. It's important if we do make a living from things we enjoy or uh, even if we don't, if there are difficult interpersonal experiences that arise, it's really important to avoid rumination. Rumination is a going back again and again and again to all of our conflicts and, uh, and uh, the disappointments at work and the people who do things that we don't like and the people who say things we don't like and all the difficulties we have uh, with those around us. And the problem is is the more we ruminate, not only do we create more stress and suffering in our lives, but we pull awareness away from embodied recognition, from mindfulness, from a sense of feeling any accomplishment for our activities and our endeavors. In short, we really want to reconnect with the process itself, the joy that we get from doing anything and disconnect it from... All the sense that it only counts, it's only real when we get money or approval or acceptance or, you know, some kind of external reward. The moment that uh, that kind of agenda creeps in, we get lost in the samsaric loop of never ever feeling that anything we do is good enough. Well, the moment we fix, we finish something, we show it, we move on, and the the joy is stripped away. So I hope I've given you something worth uh, pondering. Uh, I thank you for listening, and I'm uh, going to let the people who leave now leave. If you do please remember to uh, support Dharma Punks if you can because uh, it's always a challenge to uh, pay the rent. So I thank you for coming.